0: Does your government actually care about your health or public health? I have a handy three-step guide we're going to follow. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here. Took a little break off during the Christmas to New Year's uh, week, so Hey, feels good to be back with you here. And today, wow, we got a lot to talk about because the narrative has been changing so much. And I really want to talk about, though, uh, what's become increasingly clear and obvious is answering this question. Does your government actually care about you and your health? And so I've prepared a handy guide, and this is episode 41. And so we're just going to take a look at this very quickly. So here's how you find out. There's, I'm going to take my Band-Aid off here here's how we find out there's three things that we're just going to check in on three easy steps these are the three steps step one does your government inform you about steps you can take to improve your health uh are your citizens and step two here are your citizens still sent home to tough it out uh step three does your government waste resources blocking that word down there and as you know certain words i still can't say as a medically trained individual uh, on this uh, free and fair platform in this free and fair country. So we'll just leave you to interpret that word for yourself. But we're going to start here. Step number one. Has your government produced a video like this? Let's look at this. This is really just astonishingly good. Exactly right. Pitch perfect. Comes to us courtesy of El Salvador. So... We're going along here they're talking about having a healthy lifestyle helps to reduce the complications from covid19 hey look they're uh, age matching uh comorbidity matching here obviously they're talking about now who's most at risk in an age and morbidity stratified way. So try look at these recommendations. This is great. A, hey, maintain a healthy and balanced diet. Awesome. Uh, try to maintain your ideal weight. That's good. Outdoor activities. Awesome. Fresh air and sunlight. I'm going with it. Ooh, vitamin D. It's a great suggestion right there. Drink plenty of water. I'm down with that as well. They talk about uh, keeping your kidneys healthy, cut down on stress. By spending time on yourself, very important. They're recommending yoga, maybe book reading, at least six hours of sleep a night. Very important. Now they're mentioning some, uh, you know, citrus fruits here. Try to avoid alcohol and uh, bad foods for you, like the ones you might find at the stores. That all were allowed to remain open, and then we take care of each other by staying healthy. Um, That was produced and that was put out for all the people to see. Now that's fantastic. I realize we've only had two years in this country, and, and the CDC and the NIH and the FDA only have tens of billions of dollars at their disposal. This sort of a video probably costs tens of dollars to produce in the scheme of things. So, obviously, uh, too much to expect. But El Salvador managed to pull it off. So, I endorse 100% of the recommendations in this video. Absolutely right. And by the way, if we were Running What I would consider to be a healthy, normal policy and if your country, if your government was running a healthy, normal policy, you would see it spending money on producing um, informational pieces like this and asking and advising people and nudging people to become healthier, lose weight, get plenty of sleep, keep the stress down, eat well, all of the things that you would normally do. So that would be a sign. That your government actually cares about you and public health as if it's producing videos like that. And by the way, look at this 997,000 views by the time I came across it on Twitter this morning. So people are obviously looking at this um, and catching, catching the vibe. Now, why is that especially important? Well, every so often the CDC does come out with a pretty decent report. This is a decent one. Not great, but decent. A lot of authors on this. Uh, this just came out in their morbidity and mortality weekly report. Let me get my drawing tool out here. Yeah, this thing, Mortality, uh, morbidity and mortality weekly report. A lot of names again. And now they're looking at here the characteristics of clinical outcomes of children and adolescents under 18 years of age hospitalized with covid they just looked at six hospitals july through august of 2021 what did they find pretty cool um first up they did note which was important i'm glad they did this is during uh that time period is when the delta variant was most prominent and the delta variant was a real beast of a variant remember it has an all-critical mutation right in that prra polybasic furin cleavage site to make it an rrra the pirate uh, mutation that thing was really very very good at being cleaved and entering into cells which made it much more transmissive also very high viral loads also didn't care as much about your vaccinated status so at any rate during the delta variant here's what they noted uh, down here quote u.s pediatric covid19 related hospitalizations during this period following emergence of the delta variant peaked in september of 2021 second part down there to date clinical signs and symptoms illness of course and factors contributing to hospitalizations during the period of delta predominance have not been well described in pediatric patients so i'm pretty glad this report is finally coming out we might ask ourselves again now that we're almost two years into this what have we been doing over there at the cdc and other places why well, have uh, Uh, the hospitalizations and other factors and characterizations not been well described in pediatric patients seems like a bit of an oversight that would be important data to gather here at least now they've gathered some of that data and they're looking through it and the findings are surprising not surprising first thing up we should note here is let me see if i can let me see this one yeah Uh, nope got it wrong that one let's go there it is Quote, among 915 patients identified, so not a huge study, 713, or about 78%, were hospitalized for COVID-19. The remaining balance had incidental positive SARS-CoV-2 test results. That means they came into the hospital for other reasons. Hey, they test everybody. So some of the kids uh, just happened to test positive but didn't have any other uh, attendant symptomology. So about 78% were hospitalized for covid Second part in yellow right here among 713 patients hospitalized for COVID-19. That includes everybody, by the way, uh, uh, who who was there for COVID-19. 24.7 percent were aged under one year. That's important. We'll get to that in just a second. Why that? What I think that's all about. 17 percent were aged one to four years. 20 percent five to eleven years. 38 percent 12 to 17 years. So most of those aged 12 to 17. Very interesting that we see um, so many under one year of age and also in that one to four year age group. We'll talk about that in a second. And approximately two thirds of the patients, 67.5% had one or more underlying medical conditions with obesity being the most common at 32.4%. Um, and among patients aged 12 to 17 years, 61% had obesity. And some of this was uh, looking at the tables. These are very morbidly obese, uh, some of these children. So, again, we've known this for a long time. Obesity is a very, very strong leading factor for the severity of COVID-19 in children as it is in adults. So that's not a surprising finding, but maybe it is surprising. Uh, But, again, what we're noting here is that of the people who are showing up, they're unhealthy on average. They have one or more Comorbidities. So that's something that we're seeing even in children. Continuing in green down below quote, among patients hospitalized for COVID 19, 15.8% had a viral co infection. So which virus are they in there for? And 66.4% of those had a respiratory syncytial virus as the RSV infection. Hey, RSV puts kids in the hospital before COVID and it'll be putting kids in the hospital after COVID. It's a, it's a real beast in some children. And approximately one-third of patients aged under five years hospitalized for COVID-19 had a viral co-infection. So I said it's a pretty good paper. Here's why it's not a great paper. I have to start teasing these numbers apart. Here's what I want to know. Just show me by age, everybody, and then show me which viruses they had, and we can see... Are they here because of COVID or are they here with COVID because they're here for RSV? We can't really tell from this paper the way it's presented. We have to peer between the lines. But what we're seeing here is is at least some data. So so that's better than nothing. And here's why I kept harping on that age and here's why it's important. So this is from um, Australia. This particular data we have right here, and this is an older paper coming to us from 2019 no no this is from the period they're studying from 2006 to 2015 respiratory syncytial virus rsv hospitalizations by age these are months so by 12 months of age most of the rsv um, infections have happened back here they happen to um, you can see they hit younger and younger and younger by month one and two those are the months where you're most susceptible to be hospitalized as an infant or child because of RSV. So when we come back up here and they tell us that, um, how many people, they said 25% of the kids who were in hospitals with COVID were under the age of one year. And there were a bunch of kids that came in with a co-infection as a virus. My guess is there's a pretty heavy cross overlap between the kids who were here with RSV who also had COVID, showing up with COVID because we didn't see a lot of examples of children showing up in a hospital simply because they had COVID. And that's the only thing that they had going on. So a co-infection is a bad thing. If you have the flu and COVID or RSV and COVID, obviously you're getting a double whammy. Um, and it, but in kids, RSV is a very typical, unfortunately, thing that sends kids to the hospital because um, it's a pretty bad virus, particularly in the, young, the younger they are. All right. So that's why in step one, obviously if you're unhealthy if you're morbidly obese hey you should be losing some weight and that would help keep you out and if your government cared about you they would produce a video like this and maybe they would even target some of those at children uh, particularly if you have a problem with children being morbidly obese step two are your citizens still sent home to tough it out this is a tweet i got from uh, maria laramonte just today and It showed up in my timeline over Twitter and she writes in here in the UK. They could not care less if we die from COVID or from Vax total abandonment 24 months ago and still no home treatment. Now, my aunt, 84, with a chest infection had just been told that if it is COVID, no antibiotics will be prescribed. Only isolation and paracetamol, which is Tylenol. How is this still a thing? How is this still a thing? Maria I'm really sorry for you and for everybody else who's who's still being so told to go home and, and tough it out. Take some aspirin. Come back if your lips are blue. I can't believe this is still a thing here. Why? Well, because, hey, uh, here we have proven early uh, that word up top again. Um, this is the fluvoxamine edition so this comes to us even in the lancet which is a british journal lost a lot of respect for them when they ran some bogus studies but this one looks pretty good this is actually from the together trial looking at fluvoxamine and they found out there's a relative risk of about 0.68 if you get on a 10-day course of fluvoxamine before um, you go to the hospital like if you take it while you as an early treatment um so, and this, of course, was published in October of 2021, quite a while ago, but the preprint was available even before then. So we've known for a long time that there is a 32% lower chance of hospitalization. So I would clearly say that for somebody like Maria, you might want to check back in with your doctors, make sure that they know about this particular study. That would be cool. You know what else would be cool is if they knew about this stuff, vitamin D, uh, this is a pooling of a bunch of different studies, uh, lots and lots of data now saying vitamin D really strongly associated in an inverse way with COVID hospitalizations, outcomes, mortality, things like that. But in, by inverse, I mean the higher your levels of vitamin D in your serum, the lower the levels of morbidity and mortality associated with covid they found here in green quote we found a significant direct association between vitamin d deficiency and elevated risk of covid19 in hospital mortality moreover each unit increment in serum and d levels was associated with a significant reduction in risk of covid19 mortality so they could um mara i would also say maybe you should take this sort of stuff to those doctors, see if they're aware of, maybe they just don't know about the vitamin D angle yet. How about this? Um, uh, from Dr. John B, we find here vitamin D deficiency was found in 82.2% of COVID-19 cases and 47.2% of population-based control. So 82% of the COVID-19 cases, but... Only 47% of the population had deficient vitamin D. That means people who are deficient in vitamin D are over, overrepresented in COVID cases. In fact, the P value of that highly significant at 0.0001. So that's hugely significant. And what you find out here is that 82% of all COVID cases are down here in people who are deficient in vitamin D. This is also a very strong finding, something that we saw El Salvador, Clearly talking about in their public health service message saying um, you should get outside, have plenty of sunshine, make sure that you've got vitamin D because sunshine can can associate with vitamin D, taking lots of citrus fruits, many of them which uh, are high in vitamin C and other uh, trace minerals and things you would need. So there's that Um, as well. We might just note if we go over to this uh, link down here at c19early.com here they've pooled studies for all the different things that have been tried and some of these things are on patent some of these things are prescription only some of these things are off patent some of these are very much over the counter structured from top to bottom the overall improvement clocking in number one at an 83 percent improvement in outcome is uh, Paxlovid, and coming in number two is iota carrageenan number three proxalutamide number four Nigella sativa nigella sativa you know actually um some of these uh the iota carrageenan is uh, a nasal spray the nigella is a is a, a seed extract and obviously you can see these other ones i've been a big fan of this thing here for a while but here's a bunch of things many of which are very much over the counter and available for early treatment and any doctor would have the capability of understanding this data and understanding the importance of these things and preventing people from going to the hospital or progressing through the hospital from standard hospitalization to ICU and maybe from there to death. These things all have profound improvements, Um, you know, 83, 80, 70s, These are big deals, big, big deals. So Lots of things can be done. Curcumin's on here, vitamin A, lots of things. These are all backed up by studies. Some of these with lots of studies. This one here, my fave, this one clocking in with 73 studies under its belt and over 56,000 patients. Um, It's a big number. But some of these other ones, here's one with uh, 40,000 patients where we have data for 13,000, thousands and thousands. This one, vitamin D now with 122,000 separate patients and 58 separate studies. So there's lots and lots of data here. To any doctor who's out there saying, hey, there's really no data to support early treatments, they're just not caught up at all with the state of the literature at this point in time, which which can happen. People get busy. I, I totally understand. However, uh, this data does exist. So if you want to find that data, it's all linked through at that link down there. So that works. Now, um, some of these things, you know, what's fascinating. We're going to be holding a seminar, an event at peak prosperity, this is our live virtual event. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have a bunch of people on there, and I've circled one of them, Pierre Corey, and also right beneath him, Dr. Keith Berkowitz. Both of them are very active in um, in the treatments for patients. And Pierre Corey is going to take us through some of his favorite things on this list that are in his personal medicine chest for um, how you could. Uh, attend to yourself at home if you ever wanted to, or, um, you know, take, uh, engage in self-care. So we're going to be talking about that as well. We got Brett Weinstein and George Gammon, Evie Botello. Some of you know her through, um, through our work here at Peak Prosperity, Ben Swan, really exciting list of people, many more. Can't wait for this event because um, once we get to number three, we're going to find out, it's pretty clear, that we're up against something here. And, and it's not health. It's not public health. And it has much, much larger implications to go way beyond COVID. So let's talk about it. Step number three to figuring out if your government cares about you. Does it waste resources blocking treatments? I couldn't believe this when I came across it. This is from, uh, written by Joyce, uh, came in a, a comment at the uh, FLCCC Alliance. I know Joyce, wonderful, wonderful person. And she wrote this piece on Substack that the FLCCC lawyer... Um, well, let's just uh, this is unbelievable. On November twenty third, twenty twenty one, the Office of Letitia James, the Attorney General of the State of New York, issued a letter to physicians listed as telehealth providers on the FLCCC website. She warned these doctors, many of whom were from other states, not New York, that they must cease and desist from prescribing. Ivermectin to residents of New York State, and they must amend their telehealth advertisement on the FLCC website to indicate they do not serve residents of the state of New York. The letter further threatened that failure to comply with the Attorney General's directive could result in a lawsuit seeking to enjoin deceptive acts and to seek restitution damages and penalties is up to five grand for each violation. Um, The deceptive acts were outlined in the letter. Let's take a look at them Um, first. uh, So falsehood number one that was described by the attorney general was providers of ivermectin are misleading consumers as to the effectiveness of ivermectin for COVID-19. The fact is that we have over, there are 70 scientific trials. So I think it would be the point here is that it would be up to the attorney general to explain which of those 70 trials If not all of them, they they consider to be um, inappropriate, and why? Because uh, that would be the nature of medicine. I'm not aware, by the way, of any attorney general ever saying that they know medicine and drug prescribing practices better than the system itself. This is a first for me. Um, It's kind of interesting. Number two was uh, that um, adverse effects. So they say here, uh, adverse effects associated with ivermectin are increasing as shown in the rise in calls to poison control centers reporting overdoses and adverse effects. By the way, we haven't really seen any of those reports since there was a big flurry of them right around, I think it was like August of 2021. If you remember, there was a big, huge, oh my God, there were all these uh, poison control calls. But actually, after you looked into these things, we did that on this show, we discovered that a lot of those were actually um, falsely characterized. So uh, Joyce writes here, fact, After the New York Times reported that the Mississippi State Department of Health attributed 70 percent of its calls to ivermectin adverse events, they were forced to retract the figures. In fact, the ivermectin related calls to the Mississippi State Department of Health represented only 2 percent of the total calls. And that 70 percent of those calls or one point four percent of all calls were from people who ingested veterinary grade ivermectin. So it was a fraction of a fraction Number three uh, was this falsehood perpetu- perpetuated which says the natural, National Institutes of Health has determined there is insufficient evidence to recommend ivermectin for COVID-19. Um, the fact is that NH actually currently has a neutral stance on IVM, which means that they neither recommend for or against. So that's the state of it. Kind of shocking that a New York attorney general would, uh, would put a lot of resources into something like this and would be unaware of the actual Backs of the case. So um, I consider this a, a misuse of resources. I consider this to be an inappropriate overreach by a government, but I'm not alone. And the way I detect that, of course, is, um. oh, and, and by the way, <laughs> here's how I detect that. Uh, so this is a really cool graphic that the New York Times put together, and it shows uh, net migration between and among the states here of the United States. And It classifies states into states which have this sort of orangish, tannish color are states which have mandates for workers, okay? because these could be vaccine mandates. These could be uh, mask mandates, things like that. Um, And then they compare these to states where the mandates are actually blocked or forbidden. uh, And then there's a few states which have no statewide policy one way or the other. Over this period from July 2020 to July 2021, the mandate states lost 816,748 people, and the mandates blocking states um, saw an influx of 715,000 plus people to their states. So there's a mass migration going on right now. And I know people caught up in this, in the sense that people who are trying to move to these states and buy a house are finding those real estate markets are exploding in all of those gray states down there. By the way, New York State lost 352,185 people in that period. Um, By the way, the people you tend to lose when they people say that's it, I'm out. I don't like the policies of the state any longer. Those by definition are your most mobile, which means typically they tend to be your wealthier households as well, sometimes skewing a little bit younger. So to lose your wealthier, younger people is is not good. So um, Leticia is, and other uh, politicians in the state of New York are busy spending resources, uh, and it turns out to block doctors and patients from deciding what's best for them. And in this particular case, I would say people are voting and saying, you know, when it comes to my medical and legal systems in my state wanting to prevent me from having what I consider to be the best possible treatment outcomes for myself, I don't like that. Who knew? It was unpopular with people to be treated that way. Uh, and so people are voting with their feet and their households big time right now. And by the way, you know my, my, my uh, specialty of study was toxicology. So I did review this back in September conclusion this is literally one of the safest drugs ever introduced into the system when you look at the overall pattern of use you know it's just astonishingly safe so because they couldn't hit it on the safety angle they had to hit it on the horse dewormer angle you saw joe rogan get caught up in that you saw all the all these mouthpieces really try and um push the idea that it was ridiculous that it was silly to be taking a horse dewormer but of course it's not that It's, it's also a human medicine that has been used 4 billion times in humans, and and it's very, very safe. And because you know its safety profile, this is a simple, simple decision matrix, which I put in that presentation. It's worth revisiting here. There's only two conditions. Either it works and it's safe, or it doesn't work and it's safe. And you either give it to a patient or you don't give it to a patient. So in box one, if you give it to them and it works, huge benefit. If it doesn't work, but it's still safe, neutral outcome, no harm. So that is the primary foundational precept of medicine. First do no harm. So it doesn't, it would, there would be no harm from it. But what if you don't give it to a patient, but it works now nah, you got harm. And what if you don't give it and it doesn't work? Well, that's an NA because we didn't give it. Um, and it doesn't do anything. So, uh, so we could, I guess, call that neutral as well, but it's very clear once you parse through the logic of this, that this is your dominant quadrant that you want to be in why because it's so safe how do we know it's safe because jacques did an extraordinary review of the literature over 500 papers that's what i reviewed in this particular episode that i'm referencing right here it's very very safe so in this day and age to see somebody like the ag of new york coming forward and saying this stuff isn't safe you know because they're referencing some crazy uh by the way calls to a poison control center those don't count. People call all the time for all sorts of reasons. If you drank water too quickly and you called the poison control center, that gets logged as a concern about the safety of water. That's just how it works. So um, it's interesting to see how that's unfolding. All right. So uh, conclusions here. Look, the public health agencies, they've just failed and they've continued to fail and they failed comprehensively. And I've reviewed this before in the all cause mortality data, which are shocking. This year compared to last year, something is wrong in this story when we don't see it's the both the sins of omission and commission. The omission sins are not telling us about the importance of exercise and sleeping well and eating well and having appropriate levels of vitamin D in your body, preparing your terrain of skipping out and actively committing the sins of blocking early treatments that we know with tons of data, lots of science have positive benefits. So. That's a pretty comprehensive fail. That's what I'm pointing to here. And in many cases, they still aren't trying to be better or do better. That much is clear uh, in many countries that I look at, including the one I live in. This is that's odd. It's really it's very odd. It, it's eventually you have to just catch up with reality and say, oh, we got some things wrong. I mean, it's just the pressure of this is extraordinary. And one of the great things I'm working on and towards here is the idea that we're this close from having these sorts of conversations that I th- I know you're thinking these things in your head. I know you've had these conversations with some people around you. That's what's called private knowledge still. When it's common knowledge is when everybody knows what everybody knows. And it's shocking the number of things that have come out into common knowledge just in the past week, week and a half, right? We even had Fauci admitting or explaining, I should say, not even admitting, claiming the territory of explaining in his grouchy way, That kids in the hospital today might be there because they happen to be there with COVID, but not because they were there because of COVID. That's Fauci. So all of a sudden, this thing you and I have been I've been trying to talk about for two years, just that simple distinction. Are you there with it or you're there because of it? That's an important distinction, obviously, of course. And now all of a sudden. We're seeing that shift into common knowledge or people now, because Fauci said it, well, I guess we can all talk about it now. That's weird because um, we could have reasoned our way through that. And we did all on our own. All right. All of which means the future is going to be kind of bleak. It's going to be tough, really tough. Why is that? It's because the same f- failures of simple logic, of simple deduction, the same failures of corruption and institutional inertia and um, uh, the inappropriate like the the total loss of the plot line that these institutions are there to serve us not the other way around i mean we've even seen this at the college and university levels where they, you know they, they no longer feel like they have an, uh, an appropriate level of of uh, responsibility for assuring that the people who come through their programs have a meaningful return on that investment over time or uh, other things like that so this Level of institutional failure is coming at a really awkward time in human history, and that's something I need to talk to people about. That agenda that we know we've felt in play throughout 2020 and 2021. Okay, that's agenda is why you need to be resilient and prepared coming into 2022. Speaking of which, um, we have our annual seminar coming up. This is going to be a virtual seminar. Number of awesome things you can see these incredible featured speakers we have down here we're going to be exploring the agenda what you can do about it the goal of this is for you to have enough context to become resilient emotionally resilient uh, financially resilient uh, materially resilient things like that and so that's january 29th and 30th that's saturday sunday it's a virtual event will be recorded we have an early bird special 25% off if you sign up before the 10th of january and by the way something special this year i know you all love talking with each other so we've worked extra hard we're going to have um special dedicated digital pavilions open for you for an entire week before the seminar and then however long afterwards depending on the energy because we want you to be able to talk with each other all right, so that's the seminar, but I have one other date for you to look at, and that's this one here, uh, because I am going to be showing up here at this, and I'm looking forward to meeting lots of people here at this thing. I'll let you read what it is, uh, and uh, because I'm never clear what <laughs> what's going to trip up the sensors. I don't know anymore. So this is really important. This is about people in the United States. Our voice is being heard. I'm going to show up there. If you come by Peak Prosperity, you can also find out, where we're gonna be gathering. because we're gonna have a couple of rally points. We're gonna be wearing resilience t-shirts and other ways of identifying each other. It's gonna be fun. Hope the weather's good for that. And so um, I can't wait to see people there. I'll think I'm gonna be speaking at this thing too. So I'm hoping it's super well attended. At any rate, we'll check that out. Part two of this, which I'm gonna be talking about back at Peak Prosperity. I have more data, more insights, more things to discuss around the data that I'm seeing right now and what the implications of that are. So if you wanna come by the website, remember we are always running a special offer here for you, uh, the YouTube viewers, where you can come on over and try us out for just seven bucks for the first month, see if it fits. If it does, great, but this kind of discussion and this kind of data is what we're talking about over there. All right, so for those of you who are gonna see me over there, come on over. I'll see you at Peak Prosperity. For everybody else, I will see you next time. See ya.